How's your day going? Good? Lousy? Meh? In other words, perfectly ordinary, right? So imagine that right now, as you listen to this podcast, that suddenly a massive, rumbling roar fills your ears, triggering a deep-seated, wild fear inside your brain that you didn't know you were capable of feeling. With no other warning, the floor violently convulses as if the ground was a waterbed that someone jumped on. You and everything around you go flying in the air, landing with a crash only to bounce up again. The ceiling and walls buckle and collapse in on you. You smell gas leaking from ruptured pipes. Electrical lines snap sizzle ominously, threatening fiery explosions. You can't run because your feet are bouncing against the jumping, rocking earth as the subterranean spasms go on and on and on for six endless minutes of sheer terror. It finally subsides. And that's when you hear a siren. The siren. And you know the worst is yet to come. My name is Diane Ladley, America's ghost storyteller, and this is Ghosts of Japan's Tsunami, episode 9 in my monthly podcast series of history's eeriest true ghost stories. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Hysteria on Apple Podcasts, where you can also rate and review this episode. You can also support future episodes on the Send Diane a Tip link at hysteria.com, because this is Hysteria. It's history that floats up from the watery depths of your subconscious mind. On a Friday afternoon, March 11, 2011, in the dark, fathomless depths of the Pacific Ocean off the northeast coast of Japan, two plates slipped. Not just any old dinner plates, mind you, but the North American tectonic plate, slipping like a comedian on a banana peel over the Pacific plate. You know, the one on which the entire Pacific Ocean rests. Yeah, that one. The banana peel in this case was a thick layer of oozing slippery clay, which resulted in a spectacular landmass slip of 164 feet, the largest earthquake fault slip ever recorded. But there is nothing funny about the Godzilla-sized magnitude 9 earthquake it created that blasted northeast Japan, specifically the Japanese mainland island of Honshu. As the fourth most powerful earthquake ever recorded, the jolt moved the island eight feet to the east. It was heard by a satellite orbiting the outer edge of Earth's atmosphere and caused fjords in Norway to slosh back and forth. But worst of all, it generated a series of gigantic tsunami waves up to 33 feet high, unimaginably powerful, multiple deluges of black water that penetrated as far as six miles inland across 217 miles all along the coast. The mighty Notori River reversed its course and overflowed its 18-foot-tall seawalls. Its heavy concrete blocks chewed up and spat out by the titanic tidal surges of water. Whole airplanes were swept away when the waves inundated Sendai Airport. 
natural gas storage tanks majestically exploded at the Cosmo oil refinery, burning even as the waters surrounded it. Fire swept the region for days, filling the snowy gray sky with smoke. The earthquake and tsunami were Mother Nature's one-two punch, but there is yet a third punch to come. A terrible, invisible wraith, freed from its containment prison by the earthquake. It crept across the landscape, withering, mutating, poisoning black everything its skeletal fingers touched. It was the specter of radiation, leaking from the crippled Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant that had been so heavily damaged it had gone into a nuclear meltdown even more environmentally devastating than Chernobyl. To this day, no one lives there. The land itself is poison. Despite Japan's extensive array of tsunami evacuation systems, only 58% of people headed for higher ground at the warning sirens. Some people actually ran to the harbors in hopes of getting great video to post online. Thousands simply ignored the warnings or didn't take it seriously, even though police were shouting from their car's loudspeakers for everybody to run, run to higher ground. To their astonishment, people just smiled and waved back at them, standing on the streets, chatting to neighbors, or cleaning up after the earthquake, even as the fingers of the first wave approached, lapping at their shoes. By then, it would have been too late to run. Seconds later, they'd feel a tugging at their feet and ankles, then a sucking at their legs, chest, and then shoulders with a tremendous force stronger than gravity. Then would come the screaming and the drowning, trapped in a churning washing machine of stinking seawater, cars, glass, nails, concrete, and shattered wood. This deadly mass of debris would pierce and pulverize their bodies with superhuman force into unrecognizable pulp. Then, when the waves finally receded, most of the bodies were carried far out into the ocean deeps, a feast for sharks lost forever. Why didn't they run for safety? It's human nature itself. Take the unbearably tragic case with the Okawa Elementary School in the village of Kamaya, 200 miles north of Tokyo. The village emergency protocol manual designated the school grounds as an official evacuation point in case of a tsunami. So, despite the fact that the school was at the foot of an easily climbed hill well above sea level, local officials and teachers insisted that everybody stay on the low-lying school field. They had to obey the manual. Surely the manual's authors would know that this field was safe from tsunamis. Otherwise, why would they tell them to go there in emergencies? Those few who questioned it were told to calm down, shut up, or we were told to stay here, so stay. Most obeyed. Only one teacher and four students defied the principal, defied protocol, ran up the hill, and at 3.36 p.m., less than an hour after the earthquake, they watched in horror 
as a frothing, angry surge foamed through the streets below them, ripping houses off their foundations, tossing cars, heavy trucks, even huge fishing trawlers like toys in a bathtub. And they watched their schoolmates, teachers, and families swallow down the roaring black throat of this violent ocean-born monster. Almost the entire school, 74 children, 10 teachers, and most of the school building itself were lost to the deadly sea. They weren't alone. An estimated 20,000 people died on that bitterly cold March afternoon. Survivors shivered, wept and screamed in the snow and icy rain. As the waters finally receded, it left behind a nightmarish, abstract Escher painting of a post-apocalyptic wasteland. The photographs haunt us to this day. A whole ferry boat perched like a lady's hat on top of a three-story building. A dead man's hand protruding from a tumbled mass of concrete sea barriers, like a piece of meat chewed between crooked teeth. A panorama of tiny figures, rescue workers, moving among a boiled mass of twisted metal roofs, wood, and upturned cars, lying feet thick as far as the eye can see. A wooden house shredded into strips as if ripped by a giant tiger tossed on top of a two-story brick building, a line of trash spilling from its gutted windows as if vomiting from the horror. There's a highway road peeled into patchy ribbons, whipped by the godlike force of the raging torrent. An aerial view of cargo containers and heavy cranes smashed together like a colorful, crazy quilt. An Air Force jet spotted an entire intact suburban Japanese home drifting far out on the ocean days later, heading toward the west coast of America, along with five million tons of debris. The house didn't make it. It eventually slipped quietly beneath the waves and was engulfed whole. The one-two-three punch of the great earthquake and tsunami of 2011 was the single largest loss of life in Japan since the bombings of Nagasaki and Hiroshima way back in 1945. Traditional Japanese culture forbids much overt expression of grief, believing that it's a selfish indulgence. Why cry for your own losses when so many others have lost more? So they refuse to speak their emotions ruthlessly locking up their pain in the silent dungeons of their minds, where it burrows deep and festers in the subconscious as it tries to find any way out, any way for pain to escape. A few months after the tsunami, a group of Shinto and Buddhist monks launched an event called the Café du Monku, Basically, it offered people within the devastated area a chance to have a cup of tea, a friendly chat, and a chance to complain, or monku in Japanese. 
Out of all the monumental efforts on behalf of the survivors, this was arguably one of the most helpful, at least on a psychological level. The monk's invitation created a loophole in Japanese tradition, allowing people to unlock their pain and grieve openly to a compassionate listener without fear of being selfish. In temporary shelters and community centers up and down the coast, the monks listened to an outpouring of emotional trauma as powerful as the tsunami that spawned it. They heard story after story of the desperate searches for loved ones, the terrible fear and anxiety, the overwhelming grief, the unbearable loneliness. And, to the monks' surprise, the ghosts. Among the rubble of the grim disaster, people reported witnessing phantoms of their dead friends, family, and neighbors lining up outside the ruined doors of supermarkets and shops that they used to frequent, as if waiting to buy their daily groceries. Again and again, the monks heard first-hand accounts from people claiming to have been approached by dead friends asking for help, or who caused mischief for them before vanishing. Spectres lingered and wailed around the jagged ruins of their former homes. Survivors witnessed horrifying visions of people they'd known frantically running for their lives as if from the onrushing tsunami, only to dissolve into thin air with every step until gone. A phantom trauma repeated night after night. Multiple witnesses in one refugee camp in Onagawa independently claimed an elderly woman, who they all knew had died in the flood, kept appearing in the living rooms of the temporary houses, sitting down for a cup of tea with her former neighbors. They would go ahead and pour because no one had the heart to tell her she was dead. When she vanished before their eyes, the cushion she had sat on would be soaked with seawater. For months after the disaster, the fire station in the town of Tegejo received several emergency phone calls coming from various locations within the worst of the devastation. They would rush there with all speed, only to stare in confusion at the ruined, empty foundations of the home that the landline call had originated from. It was only when the firefighters began offering prayers to the dead at these sites that the calls stopped. Yet some of the most astonishing accounts come from the region's taxi drivers, who suddenly had to explain why their logs showed they had started their meters only to end up with unpaid fares. Turns out they had picked up ghostly passengers, people who looked like living, breathing people but were actually spirits of the dead who were trying to get back home. These harrowing encounters were especially prevalent in the city of Inishomaki, where as many as 6,000 people lost their lives to the tsunami, many whose bodies were never found. The taxi driver's reports are all eerily similar. Like the account of one man who was working the dark streets of the city a few months after the disaster. He described spotting a woman hailing his cab and pulled over to let her in. There was nothing at all unusual about her, perhaps a little disheveled, but Otherwise, she was just like any other flesh-and-blood person. He asked where to, and she gave him an address. But he knew that entire neighborhood had been wiped off the face of the map by the tsunami, 
Confused, he turned around and questioned her, stating that there was nothing left there to drive to. With an otherworldly calm, she asked him, Have I died? Before dissipating into thin air, before his shocked eyes. Unnerving? Yes. But nothing compared to the fear others experienced in the days after the catastrophe. Because there were some unfortunate fools who learned the hard way that the living must never disrespect the dead. The punishment that comes to them is swift and utterly terrifying. Takishi Ono, his name is changed to protect his identity, is the owner of a small building firm about an hour away from the coast. He's an ordinary, uncomplicated man, well-liked and easygoing, content in his simple life spent with his wife and widowed mother in their comfortable home and small farm. When the earthquake and tsunami hit, Ono was working on a building site. He clung to the ground as the earth violently bucked underneath him and watched in fascinated fear as his heavy construction truck rocked to and fro, nearly tipping over. There was damage enough in his town to keep Ono very busy for the following days. When he finally saw the images of the shattered wreckage where once whole cities stood, where the epic extinction of 20,000 lives were lost in one impossible blow, he felt detached. Though he logically knew the calamity actually happened, it felt as if the newsreels were only trailers for some new big-budget disaster movie. Just on the other side of the mountain from where Ono's family lived, all was chaos, ruin, and death. But his neighborhood, his life, had gone back to normal. Better, in fact. His building business was in huge demand, raking in the money. But the truth was just too enormous to affect him hardly at all. Ten days after the disaster, Ono, his wife, and his mother made the hour's drive to go sightseeing over to the Tsunami's Ground Zero. They were in good spirits, at least until they reached the demarcation line. It was unmistakable. Everything above the wave's reach was green, thriving, and bustling with life. Below it was a barren landscape, entirely tarred in black mud, scoured of everything. The demarcation line itself was marked by wreckage dropped by the wave, including long rows of cars lined up in an open field as if stuck in a traffic jam. Even intense aerial bombings during war will leave something. Forests, cemeteries, building foundations, roads. But the great wave spared nothing. Ono's wife and mother fell silent as the full impact of loss and horror stunned them. But Ono said he felt a dreamlike sense that this isn't real. He reacted to the annihilation around him by cracking jokes, giggling at the bizarre effects left by the wave, eating ice cream, and overall being an obnoxious jerk. He put a disaster relief worker's sign in their car windshield just so they could wander around in areas they shouldn't have gone, then laughed about fooling the real relief workers. His wife and mother scolded him, but he shrugged it off. That night after dinner, 
Ono felt an unusual urge to call friends, just to say hi, how are you? He touched base with a number of them, never talking for long, but just feeling this urgent need to connect with friends and strangely lonely. The next day he woke late since he had the day off, but to his surprise and dismay, his wife and mother seemed mysteriously upset, angry, even afraid of him. His mother kept scurrying out of his way and his wife left the room as soon as he entered. Baffled all day by this behavior, he finally asked what is wrong and his wife burst out at him, I'm divorcing you. Shocked, they told him that after he hung up the phone for the last time the night before, he had suddenly dropped to all fours and began licking the tatami mats and futon. Then he rolled on his back and squirmed like a dog rolling in something stinky. At first, Ono's wife and mother thought he was goofing off, though he'd never done anything remotely weird like that before. But then he began snarling. You must die. You must die. Everyone must die. Everything must die and be lost. Ono ran out in the yard and rolled over and over in the mud as if he was being tossed by a wave, shouting, There! Over there! They're over there! Look! He stood up and walked away, calling, I'm coming to you! They're all over there! Look! I'm coming to you! I'm coming over to that side! His wife and mother had to physically manhandle him back into the house and into bed where his shouting and writhing went on all night. Suddenly, around 5 a.m., he yelled, there's something on top of me, then collapsed and fell asleep. Ono had no idea what they were talking about. Stunned, he realized that the last thing he remembered of the night before was drinking a couple beers and making his needy phone calls, but after that, nothing. Just waking up in the morning to a drastically pissed off and frightened wife and mother. The next evening, at sunset, Ono saw people walking past the house, not 20 feet from him. Whole families, some young teenagers, a grandfather, a lone child. They were all of them caked in mud. Ono recalled thinking that, huh, maybe their washing machines are broken, and that's why their clothes are so muddy. Most peculiar of all, he said the people were flickering, like an old film, yet he didn't feel any alarm. He doesn't remember much after that, but his wife and mother endured yet another night of horror as Ono thrashed, shouted, and threatened them for hours of terrifying madness. This went on for three days. Each morning, Ono would wake up lethargic and staggering. At night, he'd fall into his bed, but after only ten minutes, he'd spring up, fully refreshed as if eight hours had passed, and he would glare at his wife and mother. Once, he grabbed a knife and waved it at them, snarling, Drop dead! Everyone else is dead, so die! Finally, they went to visit the Reverend Kanada at the local Shinto temple. Ono's eyes were glazed, yet he stared angrily at the Reverend. He later said that a part of his mind was saying, Don't look at me like that, you bastard! I hate your guts! But another part of him resisted that, other self with every fiber of his being. 
Ono wanted so much to be saved from the grip of this alien behavior and wanted to believe that the priest could help. Reverend Kaneda listened carefully to their accounts and asked them many questions. When he heard about their carefree sightseeing trip and Ono's behavior, he knew exactly what was afflicting Ono and what to do. In time to a beating drum and musical gongs, he recited the sacred Heart Sutra over a kneeling Ono. There are no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, mind, no color, sound, or smell, no taste, no touch, no thing, no realm of sight, no realm of thoughts, no ignorance, no end to ignorance, no old age and to death, no end to age and death, no suffering nor any cause of suffering, nor end to suffering, no path, no wisdom, and no fulfillment. Now, to the Western mind, that's not exactly a comforting prayer. It's actually pretty freaking scary. But in the Shinto and Buddhist belief system of Japan, it's very comforting. It assures that nothing we perceive is real, and that to embrace this truth is to save us from the suffering caused by our egos, attachments, and our resistance to changes. Such changes like sudden death. The Heart Sutra reminds the believer of this and awakens peace inside them. As Reverend Canada chanted, Ono's clasped hands rose above his head as if being pulled from above on a string, though he had no awareness of it. On the last phrase, Canada splashed him with holy water and suddenly the bleak, angry darkness that had a hold on Ono was released, replaced with great tranquility. He later said, My head was light. In a moment, the thing that had been there had gone. Strangely, his nose was abruptly stuffy, and it started streaming, not mucus, but a bright pink jelly like no one had ever seen before or since. Afterward, Reverend Canada read Ono the Riot Act. How dare he go laughing into a place brimming with thousands of tragically lost spirits, wandering and weeping that their lives are over. Is it any wonder that they resented you, Ono? Wanted to punish you? They possessed you. Tried to destroy your life as theirs have been destroyed. They sent the spirit of a dog in you. A dog who also died in the flood, causing Ono to lick the furniture and roll like a dog who found a pile of dung. Ono had been possessed by the worst, most dangerous kind of ghost, called a gaki, Japanese for hungry ghost. These are malicious, malignant specters, so bitter and foul that their lives were cut short that they hunger to lash their fury out on the living. Especially on those who mock their tragedy, disrespect their pain and misery. In a wasteland, populated by the newly bereaved ghosts who violently died in a wholesale annihilation of biblical proportions, Ono had laughed at them and paid the price. Thanks to Reverend Canada's exorcism, Ono got off easy.
In ancient Japanese folklore, the ghost stories, or kaidan in Japanese, were often set in the deep forests and imposing mountains of Tohoku, the bitterly cold northeast part of mainland Japan. It was the fabled realm of goblins, barbarians, demons, and evil spirits, and the mythical entrance to the underworld. Even today, holy blind shamanesses gather at the foot of Tohoku's volcano, Mount Fear, to pray and appease the dead. Tohoku was also ground zero for the 2011 tsunami. Under such circumstances, how could there fail to be a swarm of reported hauntings in the place that was already the land of the dead? I believe that, in the far distant future, young Japanese teenagers will gather round the campfire for an eerily delicious Kedankai, a ghost story party. And in their stories, the location for the Land of the Dead will have moved slightly south, closer to Tokyo. Specifically, the empty 143 square miles surrounding the former Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. Those future Japanese storytellers will describe the nuclear exclusion zone in stark and haunting language. A decrepit restaurant with tables still formally set with plates, china, rolled napkins, and chopsticks. Half-eaten meals from those long-ago interrupted lunches have turned into decayed black smears on plates. Feral pigs, dogs, cats, and cows amble through abandoned city streets. A bunny rabbit is born without ears, its fluffy white body riddled inside with cancerous tumors. Open-air fish market bins spill over with thousands of skeletal fish carcasses. Withered brown grasses twine around rusting remains of cars. There's a news kiosk, stands of faded porn magazines and stacks of yellowed newspapers dated March 11, 2011. The only new things in the entire area are about a hundred blue tank silos holding the 750,000 tons of radioactive seawater used to cool the melted reactors after the disaster, stored there in perpetuity until scientists can finally figure out how to decontaminate the water and safely send it back into the ocean. No one dares live in that supernaturally haunted desolation anymore. Only ghosts. And no one will live there for generations, despite the government insisting the land is safe. No one believes them. This is the new land of the dead. And we made it ourselves. History is written, researched, and produced by me, Diane Ladley, America's ghost storyteller. If you liked it, I'd love to hear from you. A few written words of praise in a review, a five-star rating on iTunes, friending me on the Hysteria Facebook page, and, best of all, subscribing to automatically get new episodes. You can also support future episodes of Hysteria for as little as $1 a month, like Eric A. of St. Petersburg, Florida, and Judy S. of Bellingham, Washington did this past month. They are two of the heroes throughout Hysteria, and I am so glad they're part of our growing podcast family. To help out and become a hero too, go to hysteria.com and click the Send Diane a Tip link. 
there you'll also find music and sound effects credits, references, and suggested reading for this episode, The Ghosts of Japan's Tsunami. That's hysteri.com, H-I-S-T-E-E-R-I-E.com. Don't forget that dash. And thank you for listening to Hysteri. It's history that floats up from the watery depths of your subconscious mind. <laughs>